Before I start this week's episode, just a quick note to thank the photographer who created the image on the podcast cover art. That's Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Let's crack on with it. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cubbride. It's been a reasonably busy week this week, so let's crack on. This week we've got news of sanctions, more sanctions, individuals sanctioned, as well as the success of a coordinated approach. Uh, we've got an update from Companies House on the secondary legislation supporting the establishment of the Register of Overseas Entities. We've got a look at the UK financial Uh, UK Finance Fraud Report for 2022, as well as news of an upcoming special edition of the podcast. We start this week with sanctions. In the UK, it's genuinely come down to a trickle of news this week about sanctions, but we start with an announcement from the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office, the FCDO, which has added the richest, or frankly the second richest, depending on what you read, man in Russia who is Vladimir Patanin uh, to the list of individuals sanctioned following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Patanin, owner of the mining conglomerate Interos and a significant stakeholder in the world's largest nickel producer, Norilsk Nickel, will face the same asset and wealth limitations that others allied to Putin have faced. The press release of the story provides. As long as Putin continues his abhorrent assault on Ukraine, we will use sanctions to weaken the Russian war machine. The sanctions show that nothing and no one is off the table. I'm not sure that is entirely true, because other jurisdictions have sanctioned certain Russians not yet sanctioned by the UK in what may be a clear case of who you know. In the same press release, it was also announced that Anna Sibileva, Putin's first cousin once removed, was also sanctioned. Uh, Sibileva is the president of the Russian coal mining company JSC Kolmar Group, which has itself also been sanctioned this week. It was also announced that following a meeting of the G7, that the UK, US, Japan and Canada will lead the G7 in a ban on the importation of Russian gold, which is the Russian Federation's most significant non-energy export. The gold exportation market is estimated by the UK government to be worth over £13.5 billion to the Russian economy, although this may be a slight underestimation given some reports stating it could be as high as £15 billion. Now, to read the announcements from governments across the globe, this would seem to be a dramatic attack on Russia. But it seems that it may not have quite the impact suggested. Reuters reports that this move could be largely symbolic, given that most exports of Russian gold have ceased in any event. Worth noting that this sanction was always on the card since it was flagged last week by the EU in advance of the G7 meeting. If we look beyond the United Kingdom, and as we discussed in episode 10 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, Switzerland has tended to mirror the sanctions moves made by the European Union. This is no surprise, since Switzerland, though not a full member of the European Union, is a member of the single market. Well, news this week that the Swiss have announced they will adopt a significant swathe of Russian financial and trade sanctions announced by the European Union. This includes the finely balanced energy imports ban 
as well as placing limitations on the provision of professional services. As we've considered in previous weeks, Russian oligarchs and corporations rely significantly on professional services provided by firms in the UK, the US and the EU for the management of their wealth and their reputation, which can be worth just as much in some cases. This alignment closes a further option for those allied closely to Putin. Finally, on sanctions this week, the Russian elites, proxies and oligarchs, Repo Task Force, the body set up to coordinate the sanctions response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which consists of the US, EU and UK, has this week issued a joint statement to highlight 100 days of achievements. It provides that since its formation, Repo's membership has first blocked or frozen some $30 billion worth of sanctioned Russians' assets in financial accounts and economic resources. Secondly, it has immobilized about $300 billion US dollars worth of Russian central bank assets. Thirdly, focusing on the oligarchs' trinkets, it has seized, frozen or detained yachts and other vessels owned, held or controlled by sanctioned Russians as well as luxury real estate owned, held or controlled by sanctioned Russians. Finally, and perhaps most significantly, it has limited Russia's access to the global financial system, which has provoked moves by Russia to respond by developing its own ruble-denominated financial payment system. This is something that we've looked at in previous editions of the Financial Crime Weekly. It remains to be seen, frankly, what is left to be done other than going for those individuals either not yet in the focus of any, or certainly not yet in the focus of all, sanctions regimes. Frankly, there is still a bit of a hit-and-miss approach to sanctions on individuals with a lack of consistency in approach globally. That's it for sanctions. Let's focus on money laundering now. In the UK, Companies House has published two blogs authored by Rachel Watts, the Register of Overseas Entries, the ROE lead at Companies House, on the progress of the secondary legislation which will bring about the implementation of the Register of Overseas Entities. The first part of the blog identifies that the ROE will be a digital service launching in the summer and those affected by it will be required to register online. It also reasserts that the register will be publicly available, a key aspect of transparency, but that certain circumstances may permit limitations on the availability of personal information, particularly if there is a risk to an individual of violence or intimidation because of the activities of the overseas entity. Finally, part one of the two blogs identifies that where an overseas entity must declare beneficial owners under the Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Act, the circumstances are, first of all, where the beneficial owner is a legal entity governed by the law of a country or territory outside the United Kingdom. Secondly, the beneficial owners must provide, uh, where the beneficial owner provides trust services, that is, it acts as a trustee of a trust or similar legal arrangement, and if the provision of trust services is regulated in that country or territory by a supervisory authority. Second part of the blog focuses on verification, provision of information during the transition, and administrative changes, which I'll mention very briefly. 
first on verification in advance of an overseas entity registering its beneficial owners or managing offices officers a uk supervised relevant person must verify the required information about them the supervised relevant person is one designated under the money laundering regulations 2017 and includes credit institutions financial institutions auditors insolvency practitioners external accountants, tax advisors, independent legal professionals, and so on and so forth. The usual suspects, the sort of people you'd expect to verify that sort of thing. Secondly, where a relevant disposal of land occurred on or after the 28th of February 2022, which was the date the Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Bill was published, the this disposition must still be registered on the Register of Overseas Entities, Dealing, uh, detailing their beneficial owners or managing officers at the time of the disposition. The final point which the blog makes is that the regulations make changes to the land registration rules. Now these are the practical rules relating to the disposition of estates and interests in land and Her Majesty's Land Registry which is the body which maintains the register of land ownership in England and Wales will publish separate guidance on that later in the year. Big news in Switzerland this week, where the Federal Criminal Court has fined Credit Suisse, uh, Switzerland's second largest bank, 2 million Swiss francs, and ordered it to repay almost 20 million US dollars for anti-money laundering failures. The bank, along with a former employee, were found to have carried out insufficient checks to prevent an, uh, an alleged Bulgarian cocaine trafficking gang from laundering its profits using Credit Suisse over the course of four years up to 2008. Credit Suisse, the court found, had deficient client relationship management as well as a deficient system with regard to the monitoring and implementation of anti-money laundering rules. The employee received a 20-month suspended sentence and a fine. Credit Suisse has said that it will appeal the decision, but the fact that the Swiss authorities brought the prosecution at all should sharpen the focus of other Swiss banks and financial institutions to see that their anti-money laundering systems and controls are sufficiently in compliance with Swiss law. Finally, on money laundering this week, the Financial Action Task Force has, first of all, published a consultation on its review of Recommendation 25 of the FATF 40, on the transparency and beneficial ownership of legal arrangements. The FATF stated objective is the improvement of Recommendation 25, which will better meet, meet its stated objective of the prevention of the misuse of legal arrangements for money laundering and or terrorist financing. The deadline for receipt of comments in response to the consultation is 6pm, Central European Summer Time on the 1st of August 2022. Secondly, the FATF has also published a targeted update on the implementation of its standards on virtual assets and virtual asset service providers to prevent them being used for money laundering and terrorist financing. The update focuses on the FATF's travel rule, which is a direct response to the FATF's June 2021 findings that countries as well as the private sector, face particular challenges in this area. Further, 
The update identifies emerging risks and market developments, including on decentralized finance, non-fungible tokens, and unhosted wallets. Now, big news on fraud this week. UK Finance has published its annual fraud report for 2022. Now, the report is, as it always is, well worth a read, for it gives an indication of the degree of fraud across a range of interesting areas relevant to practice. Worth flagging for our purposes is authorised push payment fraud. There's been an awful lot in the news, particularly over the last three to four months, both in the legal, regulatory and compliance areas, on this authorised push payment fraud or APP fraud. Um, APP fraud is the sort of fraud where an individual poses as someone trustworthy over the phone or they'll send you a text message or an email convincing you to contact them and by hook or by crook these individuals convince you to send them money under some kind of false pretense. Now according to the report that form of fraud authorised push payment fraud has increased by 39% since 2021 with the raw figure amounting to £583 million, which is broadly split about 85% from personal victims, from non-business non victims, and about 15% who are business victims. Now, I think there are probably many reasons for the significant imbalance of 85 to 15. First, non-commercial customers may be more susceptible as a target because they're simply more trusting. They have a belief that they're being contacted by legitimate organisations. Secondly, the targets do tend to be elderly, or, which is also common, they have their heart strings tugged by a, roman a romance scammer. Romance? What am I on about? Thirdly, one would certainly hope that corporations, which would explain the l relatively low level, Corporations would have more sophisticated systems and controls in place to prevent fraud with a more ready system of red flags. Certainly, while I think education would always be welcome here, and I've said that before in the Financial Crime Weekly, uh, every effort should be taken at a personal level. If you know friends and family you know about this, speak to them so that the victim pool is reduced. This is certainly key while the report indicates that only £271 million was recovered for the victims, which represents under half of the total losses by such fraud. Now, does the future hold any hope? Well, as I said, you can tell everyone uh, that this kind of fraud exists and if they are ever contacted by anybody who claims to be from an organization like the bank or some emanation of the state ask them to verify every contact which they have with an organization but beside that legislative proposals have been identified and i've spoken about them in earlier episodes of them of the financial crime weekly pod you might recall in episode six if you've been sticking with it for that long that we considered the government legislative program which was announced in this year's queen's speech where in the financial services and markets bill the government committed to implementing a scheme to require banks to reimburse the victims of scams including of course app fraud this is to be welcomed as it was welcomed in episode 6, though the publication of the bill is awaited, and 
Frustratingly, I did check the Parliament website this morning and it indicates that it still isn't there and nor does it have a date, although the government is consulting about certain aspects of it, so perhaps that explains why. Frankly, I do rather feel that banks need to be forced on things like this, that, like this uh, particularly APP fraud and the reimbursement of APP fraud. Yes, there are voluntary schemes in place and arrangements that may exist which under which banks agree to repay for this sort of fraud. But the reality is banks have tended, particularly in civil claims, to fight tooth and nail to see that there is no civil liability which attaches for APP fraud. The banks tend to feel it's outside the duties which they owe to their customers as bankers. And frankly, these continued attempts to narrow the scope of the duties owed by banks to their customers indicates that force will probably be needed against the banks in order to change their attitude to the banker-customer contract and to refunds for APP fraud thereunder. I'll leave it there. I'll talk a bit about this coming week Finally, the, the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee has published the second report of the 2022-23 parliamentary session entitled The Cost of Complacency, Illicit Finance and the War in Ukraine. This has been published coincidentally in the same week as Her Majesty's Treasury uh, published its post-implementation reviews of the Money Laundering Regulations 2017, which I mentioned a moment ago, and the Office for Professional Body AML Supervision, or OPBAS Regulations 2017. I think it might be a good idea to have a special on these, as they cover similar ground with similar themes. It may also be worth reflecting as part of that special on these publications in light of the FATF's recent follow-up report and technical compliance re-rating for the United Kingdom, which I covered in the Financial Crime Weekly a couple of weeks ago. You'll remember that the FATF identified there were some shortcomings in the uh, UK's AML and CFT response. I reckon I'll get that out on Thursday this week, so that's something possibly to look forward to, depending on your perspective. Otherwise, that's it for this week, and I'll see you on Thursday for the special, and then again the following Sunday for the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.